So, 1 Timothy, continuing our study, we're going to look at using the law lawfully. But before we get into that study, we, we need to remember where we're at. Remember the context of this letter that Paul has written to Timothy. Timothy being a young minister who has learned all that the Apostle Paul could teach him. He's truly a disciple of the Apostle Paul. And he's there at the church of Ephesus, and he's been told to lead that church, to teach them how to conduct themselves as they come together in worship, and to charge certain men there to teach no different doctrine. There were certain men, there were false teachers there in Ephesus, and they were teaching a false doctrine. They were teaching a false gospel. These men were leaders. They were arrogant teachers who, were, who taught it what was contrary to God's word. They spent time teaching myths and endless genealogies instead of the Word of God. They desired to be teachers of law, but Paul says that they were foolish, that they thought they knew, but they knew truly nothing. And most likely, like every false teacher, they heap up heavy burdens on the church there in Ephesus, giving the people a different means of salvation, a work-centered means, saying that you must do this in order to earn your way to heaven, teaching a different gospel as if there was a different one, as there is only true, one true gospel. Paul makes it clear to Timothy to charge them to teach not, no different teaching. Why? Because false, te- false teaching is dangerous. It damns people. It teaches people to trust in false gospels that cannot save. It teaches people to be idolaters, to create for themselves false Christs that cannot save. To create gods of their heads, of their own imagination, that cannot save anyone. These men, teachers, desired to be teachers of law, but they were using the law incorrectly. And that's where Paul starts off. He says, using the law lawfully, and that will be the main focus of our study here this morning. And most likely these men, they were teaching salvation by works, that it came from keeping the law. And this is truly the age-old heresy, that every single false religion in all the world teaches that we can earn our way to heaven, that it's just about being a good person and you can get there. This is false, it's a lie. From hell, it is not the way to heaven. We could never keep enough commandments to wash away our sin. It is only by grace alone, through Christ alone, and our faith in Jesus Christ that we could be saved. Paul himself was most likely called a man that was anti-law. One who didn't even believe in the law because these teachers were saying, hey, he's teaching that you're only saved by grace. So Paul is writing this letter to defend himself as he often has to because this is what God said. That we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by Jesus Christ and Him alone. Teaching salvation by works, by the law, is not using the law lawfully. That's what Paul says in verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so we're going to spend some time here. As I've already said, this will be the focus of our sermon here this morning. These men in Ephesus, as I've already said, were using the law incorrectly. And so we'll look at what does it mean to use the law correctly? First off, what law is the Apostle Paul talking about? Is he talking about the law there in Ephesus? Is he talking about the government's laws? 
the social laws of the day? Is he talking about that? No, he's talking about the Mosaic law, God's law. Remember, these men were Jewish. They had Jewish influence, and so they're appealing to the Mosaic law, and this is the law that Paul is talking about. And in particular, we will see that he is talking about the Decalogue. That is the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. We'll actually see how the Apostle Paul uses the moral law. He uses the Ten Commandments to talk about this list of sins that the law was written against. This law, God's law that Paul is talking about, he says it's good. Yes, the law is good. In our day, the law has been under attack. Many would say that the law is bad. That we need not pay any attention to the law of God. That all we need is Jesus because we are under grace. But that's not what Scripture said. It's not even what Jesus said. Jesus gave his disciples commands in Scripture, and these commands were like, love one another. He said to love your neighbor as yourself. He said to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Where did he get these commands from? From the law of God. Listen to these words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 22, verse 37. He says this, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all, the heart, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the key. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments, this sums up the Old Testament law. To love God with all of who you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. No Christian would ever say that this is bad. This is the teaching of Christ. Unfortunately, many think that the Mosaic law is a bad thing. But this is far from what our Lord taught, and it's far from what the Apostle Paul taught. Apostle said in, the Apostle said in Romans 7, verse 12, he said this about the law. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and it's righteous and good. He tells us here in Timothy that it's also good. The law is good. But as John MacArthur says, while the law is good, it is not good news. If you're taking notes this morning, that is the note to take. The law is good, but it's not good news. Why? Because the law shows us that we're sinners. The law by itself is bad news for us. And it's not good news. The good news is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the good news. But just because the law shows us our sin does not make it bad. The law is good, and it's a gift from God. It's a gift from our gracious God. And today we'll look at using the law lawfully. What does it mean? Well, historically, the Reformers taught that there were three uses of the law, three lawful uses of the law. One, it's our mirror. That is, it shows us our condemnation. Think about yourself looking in the mirror. You go, you look in the mirror, you see what you look like, right? That's what the mirror's for to show you what you look like. So when we look into the mirror of God's law, it shows us who we are. It shows us that we are sinful. It shows us that we are condemned under it. It shows us that we have received the death sentence apart from Christ. It shows us that we can never earn heaven. It shows us how utterly sinful we are. We are crushed under the weight of the law. It shows us we deeply need a Savior. We deeply need Christ. This is the law. This is what it does. 
The second use of the law would be the civil use. God has graciously given the law to restrain evil in the world. All governments, even the most evil, heinous governments that you can think of, they put in laws that will restrain evil. But it cannot save anyone. All it can do is restrain the evildoer. So if a a government was to put in biblical laws, laws that say that you shall not murder, and they, they give it the ultimate consequence was, if you take a life, your life will be required. Then what is the one that wants to do? He wants to murder. His heart wants to murder. But he looks at the consequence of breaking that law, and he says, I'm not going to murder because I know I'll lose my life. His heart hasn't changed. He's still evil in his heart and his intention, but he's restrained because of the law. So this is God's second use of the law. Romans 13:4 speaks of this. He says, for God's servant, that is the one, the soldier, for your good, he is for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger of who carries out, avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so here you can see a use for the law. The second use here is that it's to punish the wrongdoer and to protect those who would do good. The third use the law that has historically been taught in the Christian faith that Scripture testifies to is we see what is pleasing to God. We look at the commands of God, it tells us about Him. We see His will in the law. Remember, it's all summed up with love God and love your neighbor. We see that this is the heart of God. This is what He wants for us. This is what He wants us to do. As Christians, we are freed from the law, no longer under the law, but now those who are being led by the Holy Spirit, we desire to do what God would will us to do. We want to live for Him. And so we look at the law and we say, this is what God wants. This is what God desires for us. This is our duty. This is what He wants us to do. This is how we serve Him. This is how we honor God with our lives. And as Christians, remember, we're being trained by the grace of God to renounce ungodliness. Not to live as the world lives, but to live as His people. So this is the third use of the law. Some have said there is no third use of the law, but I disagree. Christians, as I said, we're no longer under the law. We've been freed from the penalty of it. But as Christians, we are compelled towards obedience by the Holy Spirit. And Scripture testifies that those who are truly born again, those are who are His, will live like it. That there will be fruit in the believer's life. Never does that fruit save you. But those who are saved will bear fruit. And this is where we look to the law to see what is the fruit that God wants us to bear. What is it that our Lord wants us to do? And so that is the third use of the law. Not legalistically, not in hopes to earn favor with God, not in hopes to earn a righteousness with God, not ever to earn our salvation, but to love the one who so loved us by sending his one and only son. Those are the three points of using the law lawfully. And why do I say that? Well, that's what scripture testifies to. But here in the context Paul is going to talk about one specific way to use the law lawfully. And that's that first way. Bringing knowledge of sin. And really, biblically, in the New Testament, this is what we see over and over again. It's how the law is used. It brings our knowledge of sin. So with that, let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for, for those who are lawless and rebellious, 
for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, and those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. So law is not made for the just person. It's not made for the righteous person, but it's made for the lawless and the rebellious. There in Ephesus, remember who he's writing to? There's, there's men there that were rebellious false teachers. The law was made for such men. The law is not made for righteous men. If, if we, each and every one of us, could be upright and holy as God is holy, we wouldn't have need for the law. But the law has been given because we're not. We're unrighteous. The law has been given for sinners to expose our deep sinfulness and our deep need for Jesus Christ. Paul's first word there, he says, lawless. And rebellious, the ungodly, the sinner, unholy and profane. The law is for sinners to crush us in our sin. Unless you realize that the law is for you, a transgressor, unless you realize that you are the unrighteous, you can't be saved. John Calvin so famously said, if you desire to have the righteousness of Christ, you must first realize that you are unrighteous. And that's what the law tells us, that we are an unrighteous people in need of an alien righteousness, in need of Christ's righteousness. And so when we look into the mirror of God's law, it should crush us. Paul's words here in verses 9 and 10, as I said earlier, come from the Ten Commandments. The first set of words, we'll see how it's the heart towards God. The sinful heart towards God. And then we'll see how it's the sinful heart towards your neighbor or to others. As we have said before, all the law can be summed up with love God and love your neighbor. The law shows us how far we have fallen from this standard. And Paul is writing there to Timothy to expose the sin of the false teachers there. And this has probably been skewed to those very teachers. But as we hear it, it really will expose sin in all of our lives. And even as redeemed child children of God, this list of sins should continuously show us how desperately we need Christ, how far we fall, and how much we are nothing without him. Without him, we are dead sinners, unable to do a single thing. And it's only through Christ that we could ever dream to do anything good. In verse 9, it says, the lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. And this deals, as I said, with the relationship towards God. It deals with the commandment that God has told us to love him. Remember the first commandments. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is that you should have no other God. Don't make for yourself a carved image. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't worship what God has made rather than God. Don't profane his name. Don't carry his name in vain. Don't say you're a Christian and then go live like the world. Come together and worship him. These are his commands. What are they for? They're saying, worship me. Love me. The word lawless there means to obey no law. And in the context, we're talking about God's law, so it's basically saying to care nothing for these commands. To care nothing about God's commands to love him. Those who care nothing about the law of God will have no desire to be obedient to it. So that lends to the very next word, which is rebellious. 
You've often heard me say that as Christian or as sinners, we are lawless, that we are rebels, rebellious sinners. This is the heart of man. Those who disregard the command of God. The next word Paul uses is ungodly, literally meaning irreverent. Those who have no care for who God is and what he has said. They do not revere him. They do not respect him. They do not honor him. They do not bring glory to his name. Instead, they are irreverent. The man with irreverence towards God will display disobedience in his life. As the one who reveres God, the one who says that God is holy and good and trusts in Christ, he will show obedience in his life. The irreverent one who cares nothing for the things of God, for who God is, will show disobedience. And that's the next word. Paul says sinners. Those who are ungodly have no fear of who God is, no reverence towards him, and then they live like it. And sin is a transgression. It's a breaking of God's law. God has given a clear command to us. We say no. We do the exact opposite. We rebel. We are sinners. Lawbreakers. Paul goes on to unholy. To understand what unholy means, we need to know what holy means. Holy is those things on this earth, those people on this earth that are devoted to God, separated for God. So to be unholy would be to care nothing about God and to be devoted to the world. To be devoted to the things that are not God. A heart that is detached from the will of God. And this will lead to the next word. The heart that cares nothing about God. The things of God. Doing what is right. Will then profane the things of God. Whenever we hear that word profane in scripture. It's used of people desecrating the holy things of God. And this is the heart of man. This is the sinner's rebellion towards God. The sinner, apart from Christ, he hates God rather than loving him. This is our characteristic. This is what we do. This is what Paul is revealing. That the heart of man is exceedingly sinful. And left to ourselves, we want the exact opposite of what God wants. He now turns to how the law exposes our sin against our neighbors. How we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. He says in the end of 9 and then on to 10, he says, Those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers and the sexually immoral, and for homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So we know that we knowing this context that, that it had to be relevant to the Ephesian society, and these sins are were sins that plagued that society. And it's very likely that these this list could be skewed to those false teachers there in Ephesus. While they, they tried to honor God with their words and their lips, they, they thought they were teachers of law, they lo- most likely lived lives, sinful lives. And as I said earlier, Paul is going through the Ten Commandments here, basically, other than you shall not covet. The next command would be that you should honor your mother and father. Here we see what the exact opposite of that is, to kill your father or mother. Another translation might say to strike your father or mother. For the murderers, those who hear the command that you shall not murder, but yet they murder. 
for those who commit adultery, yes, sexual immorality and homosexuality, that falls into that command. Why? Because God has said in his word that marriage is between one man and one woman. And anything outside of this, anything outside of the marriage covenant is sin in God's eyes. Whether it be looking with lust, whether it be pornography, whether it be sex outside of the marriage covenant, whether it be homosexuality, Paul tells us that this is all a violation. It's a command not to commit adultery. Many in today's world would try to redefine Paul. Taking the verses when he talks about homosexuals, instead of looking at the literal meaning Behind them, they try to redefine them. Let me tell you about this Greek word here. It literally means when a man lies with another man in the marriage bed. That's what this word means. When a man lies with another man in the marriage bed. So when men have sexual relations, that's what this word homosexual means in the Greek text. And so Paul is saying that the law of God is revealed against this unrighteous act. And today we have so many trying to soften the language on homosexuality. But all modern translations, most of the good ones get this right when they translate it as homosexuality. That's what it is. The the motive behind it, whatever it may be, whether it be looking at another man, if you're a man with lust, whether it be homosexual attraction, whether it be lying with another man and committing preferred sex, They are all equally condemned in God's eyes. And changing the language of what God uses to expose our sin is unloving. Instead of declaring the law of God which exposes our great guilt and our great need of Jesus Christ, this law that states that there is no way to be saved, there is no way that we can depart from hell apart from the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Whenever we water this message down, instead of loving the world, we end up hating the world. Because we're not telling them the truth about who they are. We're not telling them the truth about what God thinks of their sins. We're not telling them that they need Christ as much as we do. And we water it down, it makes it sound like their lifestyle is not a sinful one. No, to change God's message on homosexuality, whatever it may be, sexual immorality, it's to hate your neighbor rather than to love them. The homosexual is lost in sin, and he needs the truth given to him. And I believe we'll see those who struggled with this sin of homosexuality in heaven because there were faithful men that were willing to tell them that this is a sin and God wants you to turn from it and trust alone in Jesus Christ. The world thinks this is a hate-filled message. But I assert to you today that it is truly the most loving message. And we dare not water it down or change what God has said. To do so is to hate your brother who is lost in the sin of homosexuality rather than to love him. Paul goes on to say that the law is for those who are kidnappers or enslavers. Stealing people is clearly condemned in Scripture. Stealing people and selling them into slavery, it's clearly condemned in the Old Testament. 
Deuteronomy 24, 7 says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. Contrary to all modern atheists who say that the Bible supports slavery, here we have a clear example of the Bible speaking strongly against it. Paul finishes off with saying, referring to liars and perjurers, the command that you shall not lie. A liar is someone that swears to something that is untrue or breaks an oath. A perjurer is one who bears false witness. And so in case you didn't think you were on this list, we are all, we are, all of us are on this list. Who among us have not told countless lies in our life? And Paul makes sure of it by ending up saying, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, whatever else is contrary to the word of God in your life, everyone is condemned under the law. The law is written for every human being apart from the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. It should show us all our deep sinfulness and our deep need for him. For anyone would say, not me, I'm not on that list. Paul made sure to make sure that we were all, when he says, and anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. That word sound there literally means health. It has to do with the health of a person. While the false teaching there in Ephesus will see spreads like gangrene throughout the congregation, like a disease, sound doctrine, sound teaching of the word of God leads to spiritual health of the congregation. Paul goes on to say in verse 11 that this sound teaching, it accords to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. We said earlier, as I said, if you were taking notes, the law is good, but it's not good news. The law cannot save anyone. It can only bring knowledge of sin. But yet the law is not apart from the gospel. Let me explain. The law is really, truly the first part of the gospel. Romans 7, 7 says this. This was the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, what shall we say then? The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known of my sin. Paul says that without the law, he would not have known of his sin. When the law is used lawfully, it brings people to their knowledge of their sin, and it brings people to their knowledge of their desperate need for Jesus Christ. The second part of the gospel, well, the first part is that we are sinners, that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, none is righteous, no, not one, that every single one of us deserve hell. The second part is there is a glorious God who is the God of hope who provided with us a Savior. The second part of the gospel is Jesus Christ, God Almighty himself, the second member of the Trinity who became flesh and dwelt among us. This perfect Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and was raised on the third day. So by the law, we are condemned, each and every one of us. But God doesn't leave us there. He gives us hope in Christ. Well, the law should crush us all. And the moment we hear of our sin, the moment we hear of how sinful we are, our reaction is always fear. Instead of running to Christ in faith, our reaction is wanting to run the other way, to run away from God, to despise God for pointing out how sinful we are. 
But he's calling all of us. He's, he's saying, don't fear. Don't fear hell. Don't fear condemnation because I drank up your wrath on the cross. He's saying, come to me. Be freed of the penalty of your sin. Be freed of the condemnation. Romans 8.1 is true for every single one who has clung to Christ in faith. It says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. While we all deserve that condemnation, this list makes that clear. We all deserve hell. Each of us has fallen short in thought, in word, and in deed, yet through faith in Christ, through faith in that perfect work, we can be set free of this mountain of condemnation that we all deserve. And this is the glorious gospel. Paul says that it's the gospel of his glory of the blessed God. When we say blessed God, we're not saying that we bless God, but that he is blessed. This is who he is in himself. And we say the glory of his gospel, the gospel of his glory, the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ, what we see there on the cross, it shows us the essence of who God is. It declares his attributes to us. When we look to the gospel, we see his wrath there. We see his wrath poured out on his son in our place. We see his righteousness. We see his perfect standard. That in order to reach heaven, you must be holy as he is holy. And the only one that was perfect was Christ. And so he sends his son to meet that standard. We see his righteousness. We see his judgment. We see his justice there on the cross. That God would just not sweep our sin under the cross. We hear are under the rug. So many times we hear, well, God will forgive me. God will never forgive apart from Christ. The only hope for forgiveness, the only hope to have your sins washed away is to trust in Jesus Christ because God is just. There we also see his hatred for sin. Too often do we talk so casually about sin saying God will just look the other way. He didn't look the other way. He sent His one and only Son. He didn't look the other way. He hates sin. We also see His holiness there. You know, we would never create a God like this. Our God would just love us the way we are. Our God would just let us live our lives however we want. Our God would be happy with anything good we ever did in our life. This would be the God that we would create. But we see that God is unlike us. We see that God is holy and He's separate and He's true. At the cross, we see that a God who is utterly himself and not us. We see his holiness at the cross. There at the cross, we also see his mercy. We see a God that did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us in our hopelessness. He did not leave us to just inherit hell. We see his grace. That while we all deserve damnation, while we all deserve the death penalty, we see a God that gives us unmerited unearned, undeserved favor. And we see his matchless love, his extravagant love, sending his one and only son. And if you're talking about Jesus, he came to die. He left his glorious throne to die. All for his glory. So when we look at it, we say, that is the gospel of his glory. The cross displays the essence of who our God is. Paul ends with this. He says, which I have been entrusted. The gospel did not come by speculation of men. It's not some made-up myth. It's not something Paul just made up. No, it came from Christ himself, and it was entrusted to him. 
Jesus gave him this gospel, and he told him to go with it. And now he gives it to Timothy. Why? Because there are false teachers there that would teach a false gospel. In closing, I'd like to say this. The law is good when used correctly. And every pastor, every teacher, everyone who desires to preach the gospel needs to use the law correctly. Preach the law. Preach it often to condemn the sinner in their sins. I'm so thankful that I heard preachers that would, were willing to preach the law so I could hear of my own sin and turn from it and trust in Christ. We will never realize how sinful we are unless men will stand up and preach the law of God. But don't only ever preach the law. Because as I said earlier, the law is good, but it's not good news. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law will reveal our sin and drive us to Christ. God has graciously given us this law to expose who we are. In hearing this list this morning, we should all know that none of us are innocent. None of us is righteous. The law should make that clear. What it should make clear is that you can never earn it. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the Ten Commandments, whenever I hear someone preaching law, I think of all the ways that I fall short. I think of all the sins in my life that I have committed. I think of all the times that I'm an unrighteous man. I'm so thankful that I don't have to earn it. The law tells you that you cannot earn it. That you can't do it. That you desperately need a substitute. You need someone to die in your place. You need someone to take your penalty. Jesus Christ is that someone. Every time we hear a sermon like this, it should make us realize how desperately we need him. Not that as believers we'll continue to feel condemned every time we hear the law, but we should feel conviction. If there's any of this in our life, we should get it out. Because this is what our precious Savior had to die for. It should awaken us to the things of God, the will of God, and what we should be doing in our lives and what we shouldn't. If you don't know Christ today, if you've not submitted to who he is and what he has done, I know your problem, it's a heart problem. It's a sin problem. Scripture says that apart from Christ, we love our sin. That we have an idolatry problem. That we'd rather worship what God has made than God himself. Whether it be whatever we've just pointed to. Christ is our Lord, whether we will receive it or not. Whether we will live for him or not. We heard it earlier in the song that every knee will bow. He is Lord and he is King. And are you holding something else in your life that you love more dearly than him? Is there some sin in your life that you care about more than him? He's calling you today to repent, to turn away from it. You know, an illustration of repentance would be like, I'm carrying this idol. I love this idol. It's dear to me. It's the world. It's whatever the world, whatever sin that we love. And then when we see this blessed, glorious Christ, when we hear of this wonderful gospel, when we hear about how amazing he is, we literally drop the idol and we cling to him. This is what he's asking of us, to drop our idolatry, to drop our sins, 
to drop the sexual immorality, to drop the homosexuality, to drop what is in this list, and to cling to him in faith. So forsake such foolishness. Forsake any hope that you have in yourself. You will not be able to stand on that day. Apart from Christ, we cannot inherit eternal life. We cannot be good. And so we must have Christ. And so you will either be found in Christ, freed from the law, freed from all this that we have just learned about today, or you will be judged by the law. And as I said earlier, God is a just God. And he's far more just than we could ever imagine. And he will judge all who has broken his law. And he's not... He's going to throw the book at us. And the book is an eternity in hell. And you know, God is good at everything. And he's good at damnation. He's good at punishment. And so while he has given you this gracious time to repent and to trust in him, do it today. This judgment that he speaks of will either be placed on you on that last day or on the perfect, sufficient substitute Jesus Christ. Cling to him today in faith. Trust in him. He is our only hope for salvation. And he is able to serve. He is able to save even the worst of sinners. No matter what it is, no matter what you have done, come to him and he will give you rest.